a brief review of what's going on in uh, the purgatory. We'll wrap up there and then get to the uh, paradise or the paradiso. Uh, Dante is traveling up Mount Purgatory, and he is uh, witnessing various uh, punishments for uh, the seven deadly sins that uh, souls had repented of uh, but still had some attachment to. Uh, and along the way, there are many, many lessons uh, that he's learning, lectures that he's listening to. Uh, and I, I think I uh, summarized one or two of those. Um, we left off right before he's getting to the um, Terrace of the Lust. Well, this is the seventh terrace. And what Dante means here uh, by lust is something that might include what we uh, would think of it, but uh, maybe more broadly, and that is the excessive love of a secondary good. That's on the chart that I handed out last week. So the excessive love of a secondary good, the secondary good in this case is the person rather than food or drink, for instance. And so we might uh, liken it to a kind of idolatry. So his uh, love of a person is too much. That uh, person uh, becomes his god, or in the case of Beatrice, um, a goddess, and all of his life is poured into that. Okay, so it's not uh, limited to uh, a modern uh, understanding of that. It's, again, it's broader and maybe more uh, spiritually astute. Uh, these souls, uh, and this is one of those um, realms that Dante suffers, and he suffers a little bit in the pride because he bends over to talk to the souls that are being weighted down by the, by the large stones or weights that they're carrying. Uh, this is the one that he suffers through the most, uh, and you uh, could infer then that this is the sin that Dante is accusing himself of being um, most guilty of. The, um, the souls here are in a kind of uh, fire. Uh, one of the souls, when they encounter him, say he seems to have a body of real flesh, um, which is the kind of thing that they would say guilty of this sin. Uh, and so just like those that were envious, you might recall the envious were talking about Dante. They couldn't see him because their eyes were uh, sewn shut, but they were talking about him. It almost sounded like gossip, and so they were still attached to envy. Uh, these souls, naturally, since they're still on this level of purgatory, are still uh, attached to that. Um, here, the souls are shouting out um, about uh, various uh, uh, characters, um, both uh, those guilty of um, the sin of, uh, of Sodom and uh, uh, what we might term as a kind of natural uh, lust as well. So Dante separated the uh, lustful Paolo and Francesca in hell from uh, those in the realm of the violent against nature many, many levels down, but in uh, purgatory they're found in the same section. Um, yes, Dante will have to pass through this fire, and at one point um, uh, he says that he would gladly jump into boiling glass for uh, relief from the heat as he uh, 
uh, has to pass through. So it's pretty hot and painful, uh, I would think, if you'd rather be in boiling glass. I was thinking about that. That would be pretty hot and painful. Okay, so, uh, but he passes through that successfully, as you might imagine. Uh, then he will uh, reach the top of um, purgatory, and, uh, which is the earthly paradise, uh, which is really uh, the Garden of Eden. And I mentioned to you at the end of last week this strange pageant uh, that he witnesses. Uh, it's very symbolic. The, the symbols are, are fairly clear um, in the, uh, the pageantry. The, uh, there are characters that represent the Old Testament, the New Testament, the four Gospels, the, um, the virtues, the theological virtues. So there's a lot built into this uh, image that you could study further. What is most interesting to me and, and what uh, Dorothy Sayers comments on in, in uh, her edition is that under the canopy, there's a kind of canopy that's formed, uh, under the canopy is Beatrice. Now, if the procession is uh, reminiscent or even symbolic of a Corpus Christi procession, which it very well might be, then in place of the Blessed Sacrament, under the canopy, we find Beatrice. Now, this is striking on a number of levels. It might seem uh, sacrilegious. He's just passed through the, uh, the terrace of the lustful, though, and been purged of that. So he can look at Beatrice, you might say, in a new light. Um, I just said a few minutes ago that uh, lust is a kind of idolatry, and now we see what looks like possibly a symbol of idolatry for Dante, to have Beatrice replace the Blessed Sacrament in the image. Uh, the, um, I think Dorothy Sayers says something uh, to the effect, I think it's Dorothy Sayers, that uh, Beatrice is, for Dante, uh, a Eucharistic image. And what I ask my students to consider, uh, if we take into account seriously the notion of the body of Christ and those uh, baptized Christians being uh, members of the body of Christ, then we have, or we have potentially our own Beatrices. And these are people for us in uh, the body of Christ who lead us to further and further to God. And that's what Beatrice is for Dante. Imperfectly so, before he passed through the realm of the lustful. So he, he loved her improperly. But once he can love her properly, all of our objects of our loves, if they're in the proper order, then they're means to loving God as well, to the primary good. So the secondary goods can lead us to the primary good. So she can be a Eucharistic image for him uh, insofar as it, she becomes a means of grace uh, for Dante and can lead him to God. Otherwise, uh, well, it's very odd in any case, but I think that's one way of looking at it. So Dante has this encounter uh, with uh, Beatrice here, and there's uh, several other things that go on. Uh, Dante encounters another woman called Matilda. He, is, he goes, undergoes a kind of baptism in two of the rivers there in the earthly paradise, one which erases his memory 
and another that restores his memory of his good deeds. So what we would have in um, our sins being purged from us through purgatory is uh, no longer, it seems, the possibility of memory of our sins bringing us guilt again, right? Those are erased. Not that Dante believes necessarily they would be literally erased, but they form the spiritual, kind of a spiritual function of their being erased. We're no longer attached to the memories of our sins. Okay, so Dante then uh, rises to the earthly paradise, and he is prepared now to ascend into, uh, into the heavenly paradise. There's a picture of Dante and Beatrice there, and I'm never sure when my slideshow ends. Oh, 18 of 18, so it's over. Okay. So that brings us uh, Dante being purged and ready to go forward. Any questions about purgatory? Oh, this is in my notes and then my handout. Yes. Someone complimented my handout from last week, so I decided to make more handouts. This one is copied from a book. Okay, you like, the, you, like the, you like that too. The Divine Comedy is the kind of work that lends itself to people making charts and graphs. Um, so that's, that's something. Now, if I can figure out. Yes. 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 Yes, yes. Well, let me look in my notes because I have an answer to that question. It's, it is one of the symbols, from what I can tell, has been pretty much agreed upon. And so that I don't get it wrong, let me review. It's in the... Okay, the two keys. Yes, the angel uses two keys of absolution to open the gate. One silver, that is the loosening the entanglement of sin in the human heart. And the gold one, the divine authority to remit sin. The gold key is more precious. It's the divine authority to remit, remit, remit sin. The silver one needs skill and wisdom uh, because we need the wisdom to know how to um, loosen the entanglement of our sin. And that will be, uh, for each person, that would be different, the means for that, right? So it takes wisdom about one, uh, the general principle applied to one's particular circumstance, and then the uh, the authority to remit sin is universal, and it's applied in the same way through confession every time, regardless of the wisdom of the individual penitent. Glad I could answer that with the help of my notes. Anything else? Okay. 
I was going to try to figure out how to get to the next. <laughs> okay. Nope, that's not it. I think if I get out of Keynote and then get back in Keynote, This is the, I tap on the screen all over the place and I can't. These, these two. Ah, I won't remember that though, so. I'll do this, do this routine every time, so. Ah, okay. Now to Paradiso. Did I do what? No, I didn't do any of the art. I combined these two pieces of, of art, though. Uh, Dante and, and Beatrice there. And this is, again, the, the vision of the universe. So we have uh, the earth at the center, uh, the uh, sphere of earth and water, and then air, and then fire, and then the uh, heavenly spheres. Um, or oh, the purgatory, sorry. And then he'll go through these heavenly spheres until he gets up to the Empyrean and on the way, uh, the mystic rose or the celestial rose. Um, and then that's Dante and Beatrice. Was there a question over here? In his will is our peace was the, one of the lines uh, that uh, Dante hears early on from one of the characters. And you could say Dante takes that from... Uh, Augustine uh, puts his own twist to it. Okay, so in the Paradiso, Dante is going to rise through these various spheres, which uh, Dante would have taken uh, to be physical spheres in his day. I might have mentioned that earlier. So he will note at a certain point uh, the fact that he is flying through what otherwise should be solid. So uh, he's able to do that by the by the grace of God. As he is soaring through the skies, through the heavens. He's approaching the Empyrean, which is the true heaven, where, where God is beyond the created order. So he is flying away from the earth, which is the furthest point from God, and approaching God. So as he approaches God, his, uh, the intensity of the grace uh, in his heart uh, will increase. And so he becomes closer and closer and closer to God until he has a vision at the very end. So it's actually quite spectacular. In the handout that we'll look at, I copied off the last 80 lines or so that we'll read. Um, so it's a spoiler alert here. Um, but it represents some of the thought and beauty um, of Dante's vision of heaven. And this is uh, just one part, there's, there's a lot here in the Paradiso. So that the Paradiso is the most beautiful of the three canticles, I would say. The Inferno is the most exciting in a way. There are a lot of characters and the punishments are very vivid. The Purgatorio Purgatory is very human, it's very... Uh, ordered as well. There aren't the exceptions you find there. And then the Paradiso is very lofty 
uh, literally and figuratively. So if you read it carefully and consider what Dante is writing, I think you'll find it the most beautiful and the most inspiring of the three, which it should be. Okay, so um, also what we have here is Dante is, is taken by Beatrice most of the way uh, till almost the very end when St. Bernard of Clairvaux takes over. And Dante often is, he's looking at Beatrice and he can barely stand how beautiful she is and then uh, he's blinded once or twice by the, by the beauty especially of Beatrice and she restores his sight. Uh, he sees things in her eyes reflected. So she is typically uh, interpreted as uh, a symbol of grace uh, that is uh, further penetrating uh, Dante's soul as he ascends toward uh, the final heavens. So that happens. I'm not going to point out every time that it happens, but it's, it's uh, common. He'll, he, he can't express uh, the beauty of Beatrice. Now, this, uh, this is maybe one reason it's important for him to pass the way that he does through the circle, or the seventh circle in Purgatory, the circle of lust, so that we can be convinced that his love of her is pure, and on the symbolic level, uh, it is uh, the grace being poured uh, into his heart that he is uh, returning through his vision uh, to God. Okay, so um, there, uh, I'll start off with um, when, when Dante, when they're, they're uh, starting to ascend, he sees Beatrice look directly at the sun, and he imitates her. Um, as he should, this is actually at the top of um, uh, Purgatory, I think, before they've actually uh, begin, begun to ascend into the first realm. And Dante's eyes are drawn to Beatrice, and Dante feels transhumanized. It's a word that apparently Dante made up. Transhumanizing. He um, pairs himself to Glaucus, who was transformed into a sea god and from Greek mythology, and he says, no words can explain this experience. What's interesting to me here is the uh, use of this word has come back, uh, transhumans, uh, the notion today of a kind of evolutionary step that people are taking willfully or willingly, willfully, to combine their own human selves with technology with uh, computer technology. So this idea of the transhuman, beyond human, that's not what Dante means here, right? Because the transhuman, uh, for Dante, he's being transhumanized, he's being transformed more and more into the likeness of God, into Christ. And one of the last things he uh, writes about, which is in the handout that I gave you, is how that is possible for uh, Christ forgot to take on human nature, uh, and that enables us then somehow to participate in the divine nature. Anyway, so this transhumanizing is not what you can read about, um, I was about to say in the newspaper these days, but I don't know if those exist anymore. Okay, so um, he's going to rise uh, there with Beatrice. Dante and Beatrice then in the second canto, they, they speed upward, propelled by their innate, never-ending thirst for heaven. So the thirst uh, for heaven is like an arrow being shot to a target that's not going to miss. It's uh, heading there and it can't be stopped. So they're going to 
move into the first realm. Whoops, did that wrong? Does that go backwards? Nope. How do I go backwards? Can I do this? Nope. No, it's going forward. Oh, oh, there you go. Didn't do that on purpose. I'm afraid to touch anything now. Okay. All right. Um, Dante is going to move up uh, very, very quickly. He's speeding basically at the speed of light. And he is going to go through each of the realms. There will be lessons that he learns. I'm not going to go through all the lessons, uh, characters that he meets. What's interesting is he passes through a few, the first three, of the realms, the moon, Mercury, and Venus, which have characters who failed. Uh, the first in the moon, uh, he finds faith blemished by inconstancy. And of course, the moon represents that uh, because the moon is always changing. So the moon represents inconstancy and... I don't know if I should say this, but it represents the feminine as well. So in medieval uh, imagery, poetry, etc., the for the for the man's point of view, the right, the woman is inconstant. Okay, so these are uh, characters whose faith was blemished by inconstancy, but they died, of course, with with faith, and their sin seems very excusable. So, for instance, uh, Picarda, uh, who's there, she's the one who says, that "In his will is our peace." She was. Um, dragged out of the convent and forced to marry and against her will. Uh, but she is inconstant uh, because, and Dante asks her about this, because she says the will aids the force when it gives in even a little um, so that she could have suffered death in St. Lawrence's mentioned and did not. So even though it was against her will, in some way she cooperated. Okay, now, I don't know if we want to take this too literally, use the, uh, the case of a literal uh, person, but I think his point is how weak our faith might be. In this case, it seems excusable, but she doesn't excuse herself. So, uh, and then he meets the Empress Constance as well, a similar uh, story. One thing we find out as well is that all the characters that he meets along the way in the various realms are not actually there. She's not actually in the moon. She's actually in the highest heaven with God. She's making a cameo appearance in the moon for Dante's sake. And then the moon, because of its inconstancy, is uh, the most logical place for her to present herself to him. Okay, so they're not actually there. They're projections of these people. Okay, so that is uh, Bicarda and Constance. Bicarda, the most important one there, I think, for Dante's sake. The next realm, uh, Mercury, uh, we have hope marred by ambition. The Emperor Justinian here is a representative. 
So we have faith, hope, and charity will be the three theological virtues in the first three realms that are exercised imperfectly. So hope marred by ambition. Of course, this would be political ambition. And in the course of conversation with Justinian, we learn that Titus avenged Jerusalem who suffers for killing Christ. And this is called, um, let's see, what is it? Um, vengeance justly avenged. There we go. Vengeance justly avenged. That's what Justinian um, describes the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And Dante wonders about this. How can vengeance be justly avenged? And this is one of the lessons. I'm going to give you a couple of the lessons uh, that Dante learns. Let's see if we can follow this. This is Beatrice's response. This is in Canto 7. Adam damned his progeny in damning himself, so those who followed him. The human race lay sick in error until the incarnation. Man's nature joined to God had been pure and good before the fall. Having abandoned truth, he was chased from Eden. Therefore, the crucifixion can be judged as the punishment of human nature. So Christ is taking on the punishment of human nature. So the punishment is both just, that is regarding Adam's sin, and unjust at the same time, regarding Christ's sinlessness. So that's the first part of the argument. It continues from there. I don't think that's too difficult. Dante wonders to himself, often Dante, it happens earlier, but especially in the Paradiso, he doesn't ask a question. The characters just answer the question because they can see his mind uh, 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 by gazing upon God, in God's mind. Dante wonders to himself why God did not choose another way to redeem mankind. And... Uh, this is a common question. Either God in his mercy, this is the answer, either God in his mercy could give remission or man could atone for the sin. Those are the two possibilities. But man, given his limits, could not atone because the, the limit, the, the, the sin was uh, greater than he could atone for because he was limited, but the sin is against an infinite God. Thus it remained for God to restore integrity to man. Because the better the heart of the doer, the greater the gratification. God was pleased to use all of his means to redeem man. God gave more to man than he would by simply canceling man's debt. And any other means would not have been, uh, would have been, would not have been just. Thus God has shown justice and mercy. So, by allowing man to cooperate in his uh, redemption, uh, God does something greater for man because man himself has done something greater. The, um, I don't think I was actually clear on the vengeance justly avenged. Actually, I was thinking about this. Um, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is uh, the, the vengeance against the unjust crucifixion of Christ. So that's, uh, I let that step out, I believe. Okay, so that's the, uh, uh, the lesson that God could have chosen some other way to redeem man, but he 
chooses the way that's greatest for man himself as uh, a, a cooperator in this. Okay, so that's one of the lessons that he learns. Again, they're speeding through this and uh, through these various spheres, and once they're finished with one sphere, Dante sees himself in the next sphere. So it doesn't take him any time, really, it seems. He doesn't express any time uh, as he's traveling through space. Uh, Charles Martel uh, is a representative. This is Love Spoiled by Lust. I spent some time on that being cured uh, earlier. Um, and the um, lesson that he learns here uh, is about uh, the fact that you don't inherit all your virtues from your forefathers, and it's good to learn what your own strengths and weaknesses are. So it's a pretty simple lesson um, that he learns from Charles Martel. Uh, the next uh, realm, he, he, he's entering into the cardinal virtues, prudence uh, being the first one here. Uh, Aquinas is the representative uh, character. Aquinas speaks quite a bit, and also St. Bonaventure. These are wise teachers, theologians, scholars, etc. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because uh, this has some potential uh, controversial uh, theological implications, as you might expect with theologians here. So as they're rising here, Dante uh, and Beatrice are surrounded by these lights who are spinning um, around Dante and Beatrice uh, in a kind of a dance. And so if you can imagine Thomas Aquinas dancing, there's one point where he stops and does kind of a pirouette, uh, and maybe there's some humor here uh, to imagine Thomas doing that. So they're... Um, they dance and they, uh, they pause in order to speak to uh, Dante and Virgil. Aquinas spends uh, most of his time uh, praising St. Francis. And the Franciscan will spend time praising uh, a Dominican. So this is what's happening. The Dominican is praising Franciscan, Franciscan praising Dominican, and these are two that didn't always see eye to eye. Uh, on everything uh, in the Middle Ages. In the circle of the theologians, in this first circle, there'll be a second circle that surrounds them. Uh, Dante names all the uh, theologians uh, surrounding him, and the one next to uh, St. Thomas is Siger of Brabant, who was a contemporary of Thomas's, who debated Thomas, and who was clearly or clearly held heretical positions. Uh, the most important one being holding to uh, something equivalent to, if not exactly, the doctrine of the two truths, which is that we can, there can be something true in philosophy and something true in theology that didn't agree, but they could both be true. And this was... Uh, a position being staked out actually in Islamic philosophy, uh, but Césaire Brabant, Brabant uh, entertained that. Uh, and, of course, Aquinas opposed that. All truth is one, and truth can't contradict itself. But he's got Césaire Brabant there in heaven. So that's actually quite extraordinary that uh, Dante has raised Césaire Brabant uh, to, that, to that height. We might expect him if he was 
redeemed in the end to still be in purgatory. So uh, Cesare has done something at the end to repent and to uh, uh, merit heaven. We know that because, well, we know that Dante is saying that because he's there. Uh, what I think is important is that, uh, that he is on Thomas's left. So when you read around and he describes all the characters, he's the last one, he's on Thomas's left. And the left, uh, the left side signifies error. So I think uh, when you look at what Dante does uh, very carefully, you see that he does things like that. So Siger redeemed, yes, but he, Thomas was the one who was the right one, right? He's to the right of Siger. Siger's to the left of Thomas. So his redemption is in spite of his error, okay? And it might be that, um, well, okay, we'll leave it at that. Does that make sense? Uh, so Thomas uh, praises uh, Francis, especially for the poverty here, of course. And Dante, of course, is always uh, bothered by the um, avaricious ambition of those in church offices. Um, they stop, and the, the conversation comes to an end. Another set of lights come and uh, circle, and Bonaventure speaks uh, this time. He's the Franciscan who speaks in praise of Dominic. Next to Bonaventure, uh, one of the characters next to Bonaventure is Joachim uh, Fiore, who originated the idea of the three historical dispensations, Father, represented by the Old Testament, the Son, represented in the New Testament, and the Holy Spirit, representing a new age of peace, which has no need of the church. So uh, this was clearly problematical. Um, so uh, he is there as well. Now, um, the age of the spirit, which he was prophesying, uh, was called also, or was inhabited by the order of the just, and uh, would govern the church, actually. The order of the, of the just was later identified with the Franciscans. But you would have here would be direct, through the Holy Spirit, direct relationship to God without the mediation of the church. So this sounds a little familiar, doesn't it, to what comes later. So Joachim of uh, Fiore anticipates, uh, through his teaching, uh, you could say some elements of Protestantism. Now, Someone asked me before if Dante is ever, ever makes theological errors or uh, teaches heresy. Uh, some scholars believe that Dante subscribed to this vision that uh, of the third age of the spirit that was to come. It's hard to tell. Uh, Dante earlier uh, in the Inferno defends the office of the papacy he defends the office while at the same time criticizing the holder of the keys. Uh, but Dante placing uh, uh, Joachim here in this realm is certainly provocative. It's hard to know what Dante, if Dante thought this was uh, going to happen. He's, Dante himself makes these obscure prophecies that the uh, wicked in the church, those who are especially avaricious uh, and have political ambitions, they will get their comeuppance in the near future. Whether or not he means it will be in the age of the spirit I think is probably impossible to tell. It's at least possible that he 
believed in this kind of thing. He certainly didn't believe he was in the age of the Spirit. Okay. Uh, well, we could tell, I believe, that we have not entered the age of the Spirit either. We haven't entered that age of perfect peace and harmony. Okay, so maybe that's not going to happen. Okay, so a uh, couple of characters that are very important in that realm. It's also interesting that as we're rising, um, if we look at uh, the structure of purgatory and hell, certainly those are ordered uh, in a way from in hell, worst, I'm sorry, best to worst, and in purgatory, uh, the sins from worst to best. I don't know that we can say that the heaven is necessarily um, populated this way. So that Aquinas, that would put Aquinas, I don't know, too far down in the, uh, in the realm to be uh, so low, just in the middle point. But all the souls, regardless, all the souls in heaven are perfectly happy. Okay, we get to uh, the realm of Mars, uh, which is the virtue of uh, courage. Kacha Guida is a character that speaks a lot. This is uh, Dante's great-great-grandfather who reminds Dante or tells Dante about how everything was perfect in the old days uh, when he was in Florence. Uh, you, you, uh, you, the wives could go out and didn't have to be you know, checked up on. The children could play in the streets. And it was idyllic, kind of like a Garden of Eden. Uh, maybe Cachaguita's using a little bit of hyperbole here, but it's the story that we all hear and we tell our children ourselves of uh, the good old days. So uh, Cachaguita speaks for a long time. Uh, he may have the third most lines in the Divine Comedy characters that are met. There's Virgil, who speaks, Beatrice, and Cachaguita. Even though he's only on the, in the one scene, he speaks a lot. Uh, so about Florence. He tells uh, Dante... Uh, that Dante's works, or actually his things, it's literally things, uh, our, my translation that I use says works, but it's cose, things, uh, will die. All of Dante's things will die. His works, everything that he's done will die. But that fact is hidden because they outlive you. So he's speaking to the illusion that we have, or that Dante might have, that his works will not die if he's a famous poet because he can look to Virgil and Homer and other famous poets whose works seem to be eternal, immortal. They haven't died. And so there's that temptation uh, that he recognizes in uh, Dante or in uh, poets to uh, uh, believe that. But they will die as well. They will die as well. And to prove that, he lists a bunch of Florentines that nobody remembers anymore. They were once famous... You know how it is, you take an old history book from the 19th century and then you compare that to the modern history book and they've had to take a few people out who they don't consider to be worthy of uh, remembrance any longer. Uh, Cachaguida uh, prophesies Dante's exile. This actually happens uh, two or three times in Divine Comedy. He tells him he will leave behind what he loves most, Florence and his family. He will be forced to depend on others, which is exactly what happens, and Dante knows this. And he will bear the senseless company of those who will turn against him uh, so that he will become a party of one. And what happened was after the exile, Dante joined up with some members of his party, the White Guelphs. And for a while, they were considering uh, trying to overthrow the ruling party 
uh, that it exiled them and Dante got fed up with them and abandoned that project. And that's part of Dante's spiritual awakening that the solution to the problems are not political. Okay, so Cachiguita. He's rising very, 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 very quickly. He comes to Jupiter, uh, the realm of justice. Uh, so we have the third of the uh, cardinal virtues. And here we have one of the most important uh, regions because uh, we find in it the uh, righteous rulers among whom are Trajan and Rifius. Now, Trajan lived in the Christian era, but was not a Christian. Rifius is a character from the Trojan War. So he lived before Christ. So we have two pagans here. And this is the exception to that. Well, it's not even an exception to the rule that you have to be baptized exactly because of the way that Dante handles the story. So uh, Dante... When he sees that there are these unbaptized pagans, he has a question in his mind, which is answered. It's answered by this eagle. The, 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 the saints have formed this uh, picture of an eagle uh, because that's the, uh, the Roman symbol, and uh, this is the realm of justice. Dante asks this question in his mind. Consider that man born along the Indus where you will not find a soul who speaks or reads or writes of Christ and all of his desires, all of his acts are good as far as human reason sees. Not ever having sinned in deed or word, he dies unbaptized, dies without the faith. What is this justice that condemns his soul? What is his guilt if he does not believe? So Dante seems to have not dealt explicitly with that question in the Inferno, where we meet the unbaptized, it's hinted at with Cato in the purgatory because uh, he was a pagan and perhaps he's a member of purgatory, it's hard to say, but now we have actual souls uh, that were saved. This is the answer, part of the answer, which is basically, who are you to sit in, judge, in the judgment seat, in judgment seat and pass on things, pass judgment on things a thousand miles away when you can hardly see beyond your own nose. Who are you to judge? He's talking about the, the, the pagan uh, in India who hasn't heard of Christ. What fault is it of his? The man who would argue fine points with me if Holy Scripture were not there to guide us surely would have serious grounds for doubt. O earthbound creatures, this is the eagle speaking, O thick-headed men, the primal will, which of itself is good, this is God's will, uh, the good uh, never moves from itself, uh, the good supreme. So it's perfect in itself. Only that which accords with it is just. It is not drawn to any finite good, but sending forth its rays creates that good. So he says that the, the, the justice in a, in a certain sense is perfect. Well, not in a certain sense. Justice is perfect and impenetrable by the human mind. And then he goes on to uh, catalog uh, condemned Christians. So this is still in response to the question about the uh, unbaptized pagan. First, it's, who are you to judge God? So that's a bit arrogant, but he's still going to answer the question. And uh, secondly, look at all these uh, Christians that are, that are condemned. He says, um, 
There are those who cry, Christ, Christ, and at the judgment day will be less close to them than will be those who know not Christ. So we can see that even in the structure of, of hell because limbo is closer to heaven than uh, Christians who are further down. And limbo is reserved to those uh, who haven't been baptized. Such Christians shall the Ethiop, the Ethiopian, condemn the day those two assemblies separate, one rich, the other poor, forevermore. So he seems to have the Ethiopian, who he's considering to be a pagan, judge the Christians who cried, Christ, Christ, but on judgment day will be uh, uh, sent to their judgment in hell. So the, the Ethiopian seems to be the judge of that person. So he goes through uh, a list of uh, various Christians um, that will be uh, condemned. And then he returns to this question of Trajan and uh, Riffius. Trajan is saved because Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great, great uh, is purported to have had Trajan unburied and baptized. So unburied, Trajan is raised from the dead and then baptized. And so that's the solution to that. He was baptized. The um, story about uh, Riffius, though, is a bit more complicated. Um, Trajan has the, has the advantage of being raised from the dead. Uh, but Riffius, we're told, the Trojan, was devoted to God, who opened his eyes to redemption. Riffius, we're told, believed in Christ and was baptized more than a thousand years before baptism was by faith, hope, and charity, which are infused in the soul at baptism. So the gifts of faith, hope, and charity, which come with baptism, are the things that baptized uh, Riffius. So Dante has their baptism and faith, hope, and charity being all of one thing, okay? So there's some miraculous way in which Riffius is, uh, eyes are open to the gospel before the incarnation and is baptized in faith, hope, and charity. So Dante doesn't give us any more detail, but he holds out the possibility of the righteous uh, pagan. But what he has is the righteous pagan having explicit faith in Christ at the same time, which goes beyond what you might read, for instance, in the modern catechism. Uh, the church doesn't say there's this vision that you have of Christ that you then accept, although I don't think the church would say that's not what's going to happen. We just don't know. That's what Dante presents, though, an actual revelation. And in fact, uh, apparently Riffius um, uh, chastises the, uh, the other pagan worshipers and tells them what they're doing is wrong, but who's going to listen to him? Okay, so both are baptized. Both have explicit faith. Okay, so that's the solution to that problem. Um, they're ascending. Beatrice is becoming more beautiful because she's a mirror of God's grace. Um, she tells Dante at one point to turn his gaze away from her. Stop looking at me. And he does, but the turning away uh, gives him joy. So joy in his obedience. At one point, uh, he turns back to her. Uh, like a frightened little boy turns to his mother. And uh, Dante does this with, um, with Virgil and with Beatrice, meaning what he does is he changes the language that he uses uh, uh, applied to those two characters. So uh, Virgil becomes, he's a master, but he ends up as a father figure as well. Dante refers to him as a father. Here, 
uh, this is Dante's beloved or the woman that he loves uh, now becomes his mother. Okay, so we can see the further uh, or the, uh, the further example of the purification of his heart. Um, we see um, globes of fire, uh, the largest and the brightest one uh, approaches the uh, Dante at St. Benedict. And St. Benedict is important as a reformer in the church, and I think that's why you have here uh, with the contemplatives. And we'll move on beyond that temperance. Uh, well, I'll just pause here why, uh, to show how these things work together. St. Bernard, I'm sorry, St. Benedict, Bernard comes later. St. Benedict here is representative of reform, which Dante is interested in. And what is needed, and it's the contemplative spirits, so that represents the, the convent or the monastery. But, and what they need is temperance. That's what they uh, have lacked. And in fact, in the rule of St. Benedict, I think it's, it's the, the wisdom in it is that there is a denial of the self, but it's not excessive. It's temperate. Okay, so he's going to encounter uh, St. Benedict. Um, he is, uh, towards the end, uh, flying through the heavens, and occasionally he will look down uh, to what's below him. And we can get a certain sense of this because of, you know, the pictures from the, uh, the spaceships we sent up uh, and the, those that come back and the Earth and, and the Hubble spacecraft. So we can get a certain sense of what Dante might be looking at. It's all in uh, his imagination at this point. But what he sees below him uh, seems so paltry when he looks down at the Earth because he's speeding so far away from it. Uh, the Earth seems very small, and symbolically that's important because he's moving away from temptations of the, of, of the world to, towards God. So he's moving to the uh, sphere of the uh, fixed stars. Uh, this is the, the church triumphant. And uh, beyond that, uh, we've got the premium mobile and then finally the empyrean. Uh, in the sphere of the fixed, star, fixed stars, um, Dante's mind uh, is expanding. And in fact, he says, like a fire expands within a cloud and explodes because it has no space until it breaks its bounds. And what became of it does not know, kind of like lightning. Uh, Dante, at this point, is now um, ready to bear the beauty of Beatrice's face. So at some point, he's, he has to turn away from her. Now he can uh, look at it again. Uh, then Beatrice tells him to turn to the lovely garden flowering in the radiance of Christ, the rose in which the word of God took on the flesh. This is the, the Blessed Virgin. Dante is drawn to the flame of flames, the greatest of the saints, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Another light descends and spins about her like a crown. This is Gabriel. So now he's having a vision as he's uh, seeing the church triumphant of the Blessed Virgin, all the saints sing. Uh, and then uh, before he can progress, he's interviewed, he's questioned by... Peter, James, and John. He's given uh, three sets of questions. One about faith, one about hope, and then a series of questions about love. And so St. Peter questions him about faith, asks about faith, and Dante gives uh, kind of catechism answers. Then St. James approaches uh, there these lights, and he quizzes Dante. Um, about hope. Then next, uh, and at the end of this, actually, uh, the light of uh, St. John is so bright that Dante's temporarily blinded. And he's 
asked about uh, questions about love. It's interesting that in uh, faith and hope, he's asked to define, but he's not asked to define love for some reason. He, he, is, he gives a catechism answer to faith and hope, but he's not asked what love is. And why might that be? I'll just throw that out. Why is that question skipped? Anyone want to propose a solution to that? He's asked questions about love. Uh, what is your soul set upon? What is the cause of your desire? Are there other ties that draw you to God? But why not ask for a definition of love itself? Yes? I think that's it. Right? It's almost too obvious. God is love. can't be defined. So as he, Now, we define it for ourselves right in the human way of love is uh, obedience to God or love is choosing the good for another, loving God and neighbor as ourself. But when he's getting to love as the being, God, God is beyond uh, a catechism definition. Anyway, it's curious that he, he doesn't tell us why he leaves this out. Okay, he leaves it out. But then you think about why does he leave it out? Because he broke in this pattern of questioning and there might be an answer there. What is your soul set upon? Love, he says, what is the cause of your desire? Um, the good, this is what he says. The good, this is what causes his desire. The good perceived as good enkindles love and makes that love more bright the more that we can comprehend the good which it contains. I'll interpret this in a minute. So toward that essence where such goodness rests that any goodness found outside of it is only a reflection of its ray, the mind of man in love is bound to move more than toward any other once it sees the truth on which this loving proof is based. Okay, that's hard to hear if you read it. It's a little, it's a little easier. So uh, goodness draws out love in man. Right? This is goodness that we see in secondary goods. But once he sees the source of the good, which is God, or who is God, he is bound then to love this essence of the good, which is, which is God himself. Uh, and then Dante goes on. Does it make sense? So we see the good. Once we recognize the source of the good, then we love the source. But, we've got, uh, but it's not uh, inevitable. Uh, and so the, the souls in hell, it wasn't in, they loved things, but they never saw the source of the thing that they loved. Dante goes on to express his debt to philosophy and to revelation. That's how he knows this, philosophy and revelation. And he's asked, is there anything else that draws you to God besides philosophy and revelation? And he says this, which has another Danteism like transhumanize. I love each leaf with which enleaved, that's the new word, is all the garden of the eternal gardener in measure of the light he sheds on each. Okay, that's kind of difficult. Uh, this is actually... Very Tolkien-esque, or I should say Tolkien is very Dante-esque um, in some of his writings. So the in leaving, so the leaf is in leaved. It has the nature of the leaf. And so what Dante is saying, that to, he's drawn to God by loving the created order in the proper measure belonging to it. So he's loving the leaf as a leaf ought to be loved. And that leaf there is standing for all of, of creation. And so we saw earlier uh, problems people had with excessive loves of 
secondary goods, but a proper love of the secondary good can also draw you to God. Okay. Now, whether or not this true is true for Dante or whether or not he realizes it ought to be true for him, I'm not sure, sure, okay, because he's having this revelation now. Uh, he sees Adam. Adam is up there and asks him a couple of questions like, uh, when were you created? Like, how, long, how old, basically, how old is the earth? And Adam asks, answers these questions. What was the true reason for God's wrath? Why did God punish you? The transgression of, of God's bounds, not the tasting of the tree. So it's not the actual sin, but the could have been anything, but it was the, 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 the disobedience. Okay, so Dante uh, is full of joy. He's learning more and more. He's getting closer to God. Peter is uh, glowing uh, brighter uh, and brighter, uh, and then he goes off about the, the Pope himself. So, He asks him what the original language was because in the Middle Ages, and this happened actually later as well, fairly recently, I think, in history, where um, there was the idea of the, the primal language that was spoken. So scholars studying the Indo-European languages in the modern era can go back very, very far and posit words of languages they have no evidence of because they can trace a pattern to say, well, before this, it was this, and before that, and then we go far enough back we get to what is the root words in a, in a, in a um, proposed original language. So the question was, what was the original language? Because in the Bible, of course, the man's tongues are, uh, many tongues are created through the, uh, when they're scattered after the, the, the Tower of Babel is built. So he's really asking uh, him this question. What was the primal language that you spoke? And the answer uh, to that question is, well, it is natural, language is natural in and of itself. So man, by nature, is a language maker. Uh, but nature allows the manner of speech to change. So he doesn't answer that directly, but he does say, um, before he died, God was called I, and then afterwards, El. So as in Elohim and various uh, names of God in the uh, Old Testament, the I is the I am. So uh, the name of God changed, but uh, he seems to say that's okay. So whatever effort there is to recover the original language is not necessary. I think maybe is what he's getting at. But it is a question about what was the first language. But Adam doesn't really say any more than, well, I spoke it and it died out. He's speaking to him in the language that he can understand. So there doesn't have to be one language. Maybe they could see it that way. Uh, they are rising up to the uh, primum mobile, which is the sphere that's first set into motion. And um, we're told that Beatrice holds Dante's mind in paradise. That's another one of his uh, neologisms. Um, Dante turns and looks into Beatrice's eyes, and he sees in the reflection of her eyes the premium mobile. Um, and uh, through that, he sees in her eyes a small but piercingly bright light, so small that the smallest star seen from here would, 
appeared to be a moon next to it. So the stars here, right, when you look at the sky, the stars are very, very small. If you placed it next to this star that he sees, it would all of a sudden look like the moon. So that's how small it is, but piercingly bright. Uh, he is describing now, he's having a vision through the eyes of, through grace, because Beatrice represents grace, God himself. Around this point, this part is fascinating, what he comes up with here. Um, around this point spins a ring of fire faster uh, than the sphere that spins fastest around the earth. And the, the sphere that spins fastest around the earth is actually the premium mobile. It's the, the largest sphere because it's outward, but it's spinning the fastest because it's making the same rotation, one rotation, I think this is the idea, it makes one rotation when the, all the spheres rotate around one. So it has to be spinning faster to make the rotation, right? So it is spinning faster than that. So the outer, this inner ring is spinning faster than the outer ring around there. This is the vision that he has of this piercingly bright light. Um, and this ring of fire is encircled by eight more rings, each revolving more slowly than the preceding one. Beatrice explains that the fastest ring spins so fast because love's fire burns it into motion. It's the closest to the point, and so it's closest to the love, and so it's going faster and faster and faster. Okay, then Dante realizes now that he is seeing a picture of the universe which is opposite of what he's just experienced. Okay, so the model, which is the small point he's seeing now, with the fastest circle being the closest one, is the opposite of what he's just experienced with the earth in the center and the fastest um, circle being the one on the outside and the slowest circle being the one closest. So you see how it's the opposite views of the universe he's seeing? So we say that the, the earth is literally at the center of the universe in their physical understanding of the universe. The earth is at the center uh, and God is on the outside. But spiritually, see, God is at the center of the universe. He's that point with things around him. So uh, heaven, then, his, his vision of heaven is the opposite of what he's led to believe about the physical universe. I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, it's very interesting when you're reading it and, and piecing these things together. Um, okay, they're shouting and singing Hosanna. Uh, their state of bliss, we're told, is based upon the act of seeing God. This is actually a very important idea. Their state of bliss, of happiness, is based upon the act of seeing God, not loving him which is the second step. The measure of their vision is their worth, born of his grace and of their own goodwill. For this their ranks proceed from grade to grade. So we do have saints that are closer to God. And further, further they're, all, they're all happy, right? But we have some that are greater than others. Those that are the greatest are in the closest um, circle to the spinning around the light. But the important thing here is, the, is that it's the vision and the act of, seeing God and knowing God first prior to loving him. Okay, and that's actually uh, a question for our day too, right, which is primary. We, I think, tend to go the other way, that the most important thing is to, to love God. Uh, but here he's following Aquinas in that the man's uh, highest faculty being an intellect and the highest thing that he can do is to contemplate God. And then the love follows. He loves what he knows. Okay, but that's... Okay. Um, Beatrice is silent as she gazes upon the, on the point, and of course Dante imitates her in his um, silence. Okay, so I'm going to get up to 
uh, even further. Let's see. Okay, intellect. Light of full of love. Okay, that's pretty clear. Uh, when we get to the Empyrean, finally, well, we'll get to the, I've got a couple of these slides out of order because he's seeing into the Empyrean. Uh, and then there is uh, this white rose that he, that he sees. He, he, um, uh, the white rose is this, uh, there are a couple of images he sees. The first is this flowing river of light and then these beings coming from the, out of the river and onto the bank of the river and to these flowers. And the, the, the lights apparently represent angels and the flowers are human beings being aided by the angels. He sees that and then it turns into a circle spinning around. So it's this psychedelic show that he's having. And um, he sees the, um, the, um, the saints um, and the angels unmasked in a way he sees them uh, for who they are. So there's kind of unmasking. Um, and then the image turns into this white rose, uh, this vast white rose with these petals. And on the, the petals, it's actually on the back of the... Oh, I didn't give you that on the handout, sorry. On the, um, in the petal of the various saints. So he sees various saints there. Um, at this point, he turns around and as he's looking at the white rose, the, the, um, the mystic rose, the celestial rose, and Beatrice is gone. And St. Bernard is there in her place. And um, he asks where she is. Where's Beatrice? And he points to the rose. And the rose is this. Well, actually, I do have a. I'll show you what the right rose looks like. So there's the rose. And it's many tiered. And without going through all the structure of it, we've got New Testament and Old Testament saints facing each other. And he, he, he mentions several saints. He doesn't fill in the whole rose. But the Blessed Virgin is at the top. This is the. Uh, uh, represents she's the queen here, and so this is the best place to be. She's the greatest saint. This, is the, this position is the most honored. On the, uh, Beatrice is actually two rows down and one over. So when you look at the structure of the rows, she's very, very close to the Blessed Virgin. So she has a, a place of great honor in the celestial rows. Okay. Uh, and these are the... Uh, Again, various saints, we don't need to go through all the names, but you would, you would actually recognize uh, all of them. They're, they're famous Old Testament uh, characters, male and female. Uh, we also have uh, in this uh, young children, both baptized and unbaptized, apparently. Um, and then he's told by Bernard uh, to look at the face which resembles Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made ready to look on Christ. So he has to gaze finally upon the face of the Blessed Virgin. And another interesting thing is the Virgin's face, which most resembles Christ, is both literal and spiritually true. Literally true and spiritually true. So it's literally true because she's the, his mother, and so he resembles her. And then it's spiritually true because she is... Uh, the greatest of the saints, so she's most like Christ. So both of these things. My wife pointed out to me uh, a few years ago, and I think this is almost always true. I, I try to verify it whenever I can, and occasionally it's not true, but it's true more than it's not. She told me that the oldest daughter favors, tends to favor the father, resemble the father, and the oldest son 
tends to resemble the mother. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start looking. And it's when I meet people and I do the comparison, it's almost always true. I've been surprised by it. It's not 100%, but it's very, very common. And uh, if that's true, then physically Jesus resembles Mary. He would, he would look like her. Uh, okay. Um, but then there's a the spiritual element as well. All right. So um, there's the, 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 the rose. And then uh, Bernard prays to the virgin that she grant Dante the power to see the final blessedness, to have the sun of joy revealed before his eyes. He also prays that Dante, upon his return to earth, that his affections will remain sound. Okay? And so we have this final prayer that Dante's vision will move beyond that point of light. Right? He's seen that point of light almost blinding, but to be, you could say, bathed in the light itself. And this, we get to the last um, section that I uh, copied for you. So I'm going to read part of this and make a comment on a few of these things as we go. It's a little long here, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time because this is um, remarkably uh, beautiful, especially in the context of the rest. Okay. Uh, so Dante is speaking here. This is all Dante at the end. O highest light, you raised so far above the minds of mortals to my memory. You raised so far above the minds of mortals to my memory. Give back something of your epiphany and make my tongue so powerful that I may leave to people of the future one gleam of the glory that is yours. For by returning somewhat to my memory and echoing a while within these lines, your victory will be more understood. So he's praying for this this inspiration to be able to write what he sees. Now, early, early on, way back in the Inferno, uh, he's called upon the muses, as you find in classical literature. And he's done it again in the Purgatorio. And now he's calling directly to the highest light, which is God, the supreme light. Okay, so he's passed beyond the normal invocation of muse. The living ray that I endured was so acute that I believe I should have gone astray had my eyes turned away from it. And, of course, he did go astray at the very beginning when his eyes turned away from God. Okay? I can recall that I, because of this, was bolder in sustaining it until my vision reached the infinite goodness. O oh, grace abounding, through which I presumed to set my eyes on the eternal light so long that I spent all my sight on it. Now, the medieval vision of eyesight is that it is active, not receptive. So you are seeing something, right? You are projecting light to something rather than receptive. So the verb, even I see something, reflects the notion that there's an action being done rather than uh, something was seen by me, which may be more accurate. Okay, so his light, his power is being spent here. In its profundity, I saw, ingathered and bound by love into one single volume, what in the universe seems separate, scattered. So truth is one. So now he's having this revelation of what creation is. Substances, accidents, these are... Aristotelian terms, and dispositions as if conjoined in such a way that what I tell is only rudimentary. I think I saw the universal shape which that knot takes. For speaking this, I feel a joy that is more ample. I think the universal shape here is sometimes translated as form, which is a platonic uh, idea. Okay, but in any case, seeing the universe for what it is and having a kind of angelic knowledge of uh, the created order. 
that one moment brings more forgetfulness to me than 25 centuries have brought to the endeavor that startled Neptune with the Argo shadow. So just simply speaking about the first uh, ship that's built that startled Neptune to have something riding on top of him. That was centuries ago. And think about how much has been forgotten about what really happened then. I've uh, forgotten more than that. So was my mind, completely wrapped, intent, steadfast and motionless, gazing. And it grew ever more enkindled as it watched. Okay, so the fire increases, the fire of his heart or his mind. Whoever sees that light is soon made such that it would be impossible for him to set that light aside for other sight. And this answers that question. He answers it earlier as well. But this answers the question of why there's no sin in heaven. People say, well, if you have free will, uh, can you sin in heaven? It seems like you should be able to sin. Uh, Dante's answering this in part. Right? He's gazing upon the light. Uh, and it is impossible for him to set it aside. In a sense, there's nothing else to look at uh, in heaven in a certain sense. Because the good, the object of the will, is fully gathered in that light. It's perfected, right? The true freedom, uh, the true free will is free to love God. And now he's free to do that. He's using those words, but it might come up. Outside that light, what there is perfect is defective. So outside of the light, um, inside the light is perfect, outside the light is defective. What little I recall is to be told from this point on in words more weak than those of one whose infant tongue still bathes at the breast. So he, he just said, doesn't have the words for this. Uh, you know, it's like a baby babbling. And not because more than one simple semblance was in that living light at which I gazed, for it is always what it was before. Um, it's not that it's complicated and too many things to remember, right? But through my sight, which as I gazed grew stronger, the soul appearance, even as I altered, seemed to be changing. In the deep and bright essence of that exalted light, three circles appeared to me. So something is appearing to him. The thing he's seeing is not changing, right? His eyes are seeing something. They had three different colors, but all of them were of the same dimension. So this is the Trinity. He's seeing the Trinity as uh, these three lights. One circle seemed reflected by the second, as rainbow is by rainbow. He's using light imagery here, light and color. And the third seemed, bay, seemed fire breathed equally by these, those two circles. So we have the, the Father, the begotten Son, who's the reflection, and the, the fire breathed, that's the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. How incomplete is speech, how weak, when set against my thought. And this, to what I saw as such, to call it little is too much. Um, eternal light, you only dwell within yourself, and only you know you. Self-knowing, self-known, your love, you love and smile upon yourself. This is Trinitarian language. So he's trying to express his experience of the blessed Trinity. And this is what I tell my uh, students a lot when we're talking about Dante's Inferno, that when he's talking about heaven, he's talking about presence in, being in the presence of the blessed Trinity, which is beyond our imagination here. But Dante's doing a pretty good job. So he's using the imagery of light. Uh, to uh, express the uh, union in three. That circle, which begotten so, appeared in you as light reflected when my eyes had watched it with attention for some time, within itself and colored like itself to me seemed painted with our effigy, our picture, so that my sight was set 
on it completely. So he's looking at these lights, and he sees within it the picture of mankind. Uh, so uh, this is, of course, the, the, he's speaking about the incarnation, right? So um, God becomes man so that man can become God or gods. Okay, so he's, he's puzzling now about the incarnation and the, uh, what it means for man to be drawn up in to participate in the life of the Trinity. And participating in the life of the Blessed Trinity seems to be somehow more possible, if that's the right way of putting it, through the incarnation than otherwise would be. So we could be brought into the presence of God, but we're brought into the presence of God who himself has become man. Okay, so it seems that uh, that's, this is what Dante's experiencing at this, this point. The uh, Trinity experienced in and through the incarnation. As the geometer intently seeks to square the circle, but he cannot reach through thought on thought the principle he needs. It's impossible. So I searched that strange sight. I wished to see the way in which our human effigy suited the circle and found place in it. So that how can man, how can God become, take on human nature? That's the squaring of the circle. It seems impossible. And my own wings were far too weak for that. So these are his thoughts. But then my mind was struck by light that flashed. And with this light received what it had asked. Here, force failed my high fantasy. But my desire, so this is beyond his imagination and in a way beyond his comprehension, but he knows what he can know. But my desire and will were moved already, like a will revolving uniformly by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. So that's the very end. Okay. So his will, his desire are united to his intellect, which has a flash of um, momentary flash that's revealed to him, which shows him what the incarnation means and at the same time, what man's divinization means. So it's not, um, you know, the angels on the clouds, the harp, whatever people might uh, believe. Uh, I mean, nobody, you know, that's just because it's beyond what we can say. Um, but the incarnation in the Trinity becomes, it seems, essential to Dante's um, uh, intellect and his understanding and his vision of God. So it's not, uh, it's physical. It's this uh, vision that he has of, of light. Uh, it's personal because he's brought to it through this uh, relationship with uh, Beatrice. It is um, revelatory because it has to do with the, uh, the incarnation and the Trinity. So all those things wrapped up in his final vision of God. Anyway, um, this, I find this passage quite fascinating and, and beautiful as Dante concludes with um, God as love and God being the one um, which uh, keeps the universe in motion. So that's the paradise in a nutshell or in a rose, celestial rose. Any questions? Inferno, purgatory, or paradiso?